0: Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, onto the pod. Revelation chapter 19, we were working in the hallway this week, we were working on the floor, and like my whole week was spent laying floor and helping with the stuff, and there were a number of people, there were like nine of us here on Tuesday, um, working and painting and doing work, and about middle of the week, I realized I had spent so many hours working on the floor, I hadn't studied at all, and I was like, well, it's a good thing we're only in Revelation, so it's not a big, you know, it's an easy, easy place to go, um, No, I think it's going to be a good morning. Um, Terry's going to come read the text for us from Revelation chapter 19, 1 through 10.
1: Thank you. Good morning. After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders said, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah, a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of Of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, the word of the Lord. Thanks, Terry.
0: All right. So we're here toward the end of the book of Revelation. This is a weird place to plop down. I say that a lot about a lot of texts, like when we just end up later in a book, because anywhere in the Bible that you just like open up and put your finger is a weird place to land. It's just, you kind of got to go through the whole thing. But we're here uh, at the end of the book of Revelation. Now, anybody seen the new Little Mermaid? Anybody? It was good. It was good. I liked it. I... You know, some, sometimes when they, when they do these live action remakes, the, the dish added parts, you're kind of like, meh, nah, this one was good. I liked it a lot. Um, I remember the first time I watched the animated Little Mermaid with my daughter, she was about two and a half or three. And I had forgotten just how terrifying Ursula is. At the end of the animated one. But if you go watch the animated Little Mermaid again, man, the last few minutes, it's scary. It's, and my poor little daughter, I'm watching, which she's like two and a half or three or whatever it was, and she was freaking out. I'm really shocked she slept at all that night. I'm surprised I slept at all that night, right? <laughs> Ursula is scary. Um, <laughs> so, do you remember the the plot there where Ursula is trying to? Uh, take Ariel's voice right she's trying to uh, become the queen herself and then toward the end when she gets caught she is she has uh, disguised herself as this beautiful young woman and she's going to go marry the prince she's going to go marry Eric right and they're on the ship and Ursula disguised as this beautiful young woman is walking down the aisle to marry Eric when all hell breaks loose and everything falls apart, and she gets uh, she gets unmasked as who she is. Right? Ursula, in that moment, was a false bride. She was tricking the bridegroom into marrying her. She was evil to the core, right? Trying to steal Ariel's trying to steal Ariel's love, trying to steal her husband, and to stand in as a false bride and trick the bridegroom. And here in this text, we have a false bride, just like Ursula. Here in Revelation 17 to 19, we read about the prostitute. Now, at the end of the book of Revelation, you've got this unholy trinity that's kind of been set up to oppose the holy trinity, to oppose God. You've got the dragon, the beast, and the prostitute. Each one of them kind of mirroring one of the members of the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in this case, you have the prostitute who is one of the members of this unholy trinity who have tried to deceive the world away from Christ, deceive the world away from God. And they've deceived the nations. And so we read that the prostitute rides on this beast and an imagery taken straight out of the book of Daniel, the beast, has multiple heads and multiple horns that represent different kingdoms and different times and different powers on the earth. And the prostitute is riding on the beast, deceiving the world with her sexual immorality. She's trying to pull the world away and bring them to destruction. That's the job of the prostitute here toward the end of the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 18, we read that the prostitute has been defeated. Now, here's the crazy thing about Revelation 18 there's no battle, there's no war, there's nothing to say how the prostitute died, except toward the end of the chapter, when we read that God made the beast and the prostitute hate each other. And it's the beast that killed the prostitute. And so what we learn is that there's this kind of civil war between the powers that oppose God. Because a house divided against itself cannot stand, and all forces, all powers that are not united under the banner of Christ ultimately devolve into civil war. They devolve into hatred for each other because you can't share power among arrogant, power-hungry people. And so these powers go to war with each other and the beast slays the prostitute. And we also learn that the prostitute here represents Babylon. Now, Babylon is a big word in the Bible, It starts way back in the book of Genesis. We start hearing echoes of the word Babylon. You've heard of the Tower of Babel. That gets its name not from people babbling in different languages. That's a reference to Babylon. The entire Bible, through the entire scriptures, Babylon is a stand-in for all the evil powers of the world. All the wicked nations of the world, everything that would tear you away from the true and living God, everything that would lead you away from following Yahweh, the God of the scriptures, is labeled Babylon. All the wicked powers of the world. And here in Revelation, the prostitute represents Babylon, which at the time that this is written in the minds of the people who are hearing this letter would be Rome, the empire of Rome is Babylon. It's the empire that's bringing pressure upon the Christian church. It's the empire that is bringing oppression upon followers of Jesus. And so the original hearers hear prostitute is Babylon is Rome. The wicked power that is over them that is trying to deceive them away from Jesus. Because you see, in the first centuries, when the church was growing up and when non-Jewish people would become followers of Jesus, the way that you would identify yourself as a follower of Jesus is to say, Jesus is Lord. You would say, Yeshua HaKurios. Jesus is Lord. And you would do that because within the Roman Empire, there was only one person you could really truly say that about, and that was Caesar. And so for the early Christians to say Jesus is Lord was to say Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord. The King of Rome is not the Lord. Jesus is my King, not Caesar in Rome. Jesus is my Lord, my Master, not Rome. And so that became the way that you identified yourself as a follower of Jesus. In fact, in the Scripture it says... Um, We know that a spirit is from God if it can say Jesus is Lord. We know that a person is filled with the spirit of God if they can say Jesus is Lord. Any person or spirit that confesses, that cannot confess Jesus is Lord is not from God. This is the test of whether you follow Jesus. Can you say Jesus is Lord and mean it and know that if the authorities find you saying Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar is not, they may come down on you. You may be in hot water with the, with the public authorities, and that's where the oppression and the persecution come in for the early church. When you said, Jesus is Lord, and you set yourself up in this family and in this alternate community, and you didn't participate in all the same social structures, and you didn't participate in the temple worship of all these Roman gods, and you didn't participate in some of the social events that were going on because they required worship of a foreign god or of a, of a different god, then the society would come down on you and they would say, you're different from us. You don't belong with us. You would lose some of your business contacts. You would lose some of your family members. You might lose your job. You could end up losing your life if you were one of the leaders of this group. So to say in this time Jesus is Lord is a huge deal. We, we cannot possibly in our American context understand just what it means to say Jesus is Lord. Lord, I think the, the closest you could get would be to stand on a square in the middle of Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and say, Jesus is Lord. That's something akin to what it would have been to say Jesus is Lord in this time. And so the prostitute here represents Rome, the empire that is bringing pressure and oppression upon the church of Jesus Christ, because the church will say, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. So that's why at the beginning of chapter 19, we read of this party, we read of this great celebration in heaven, the saints in heaven are praising God because the prostitute has been defeated. Rome doesn't have any power over the church. The state doesn't have any power over the church. The oppressors, the persecutors, they don't have any power over the church because Jesus wins. And because we can see the end of all human institutions. We can see the end of evil. We have a hope that lasts far beyond any institution of the world because of Jesus. And so the saints in heaven here are singing, the angels are singing, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. Because He has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and He has avenged the blood of His servants that was on her hands. Hallelujah, they say again. The prostitute has no power. Over the church. Rome has no power over the church. No power or authority or institution of this world has any ultimate power over the followers of Jesus, no matter what it looks like in the here and now. The people hearing this did not see this day come. The people listening to this were still under the thumb of Rome. The people listening to this were still experiencing the outcast and the persecution of being followers of Jesus in a society that did not want them to be. But they could see the end and they could read these words and know that ultimately Rome doesn't have any power over your soul because you are held firmly by Jesus. And so that's where we begin with this praise to God that the power of Rome is no more. Rome has no authority over your soul. And then we move to the real celebration. Right here in the midst of the struggle and the turmoil of persecution, we see in the next text a banquet, a wedding feast set up. Christ's bride, Christ's wedding has come, and he will finally be united with his bride. The early Christians here are being reminded of who they are in the midst of a society that has cast them out. You are Christ's bride. And it's setting up this kind of duality where you're either a follower of the prostitute or you're the bride of Christ. There's no other option. This is it. You've either been seduced by the power of the world Or you've been united to Christ. You're either with the false bride or you're a member of Christ's bride. That's all. And so this this text, this party, this, this prophecy of Revelation is helping those early Christians to recognize who they are who they truly are, regardless of the external circumstances of their lives, regardless of the struggles that they're dealing with, it's helping to anchor them in their identity as the bride of Christ, as the one who is united to Jesus, united to God forever, so that they can resist the seduction of the prostitute, so they can resist the seduction of power and of comfort, and of security, and I think there's a lesson in here for us. Right? We are all, at any moment, being seduced by any number of things that would lead us away from Jesus. We all have false brides in our lives that are trying to pull us away from Jesus, pulling a, pull us away from our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Master our husband, trying to seduce us and pull us away from following Jesus. And it's up to all of us to examine, what what is that? What is it that's pulling us away? In the past two chapters, in 17 and 18, we've been told that the prostitute indulged in the luxuries of the world, oppressed the poor, sought after money after wealth, after riches, after all of the comforts and creature comforts of the world, and in doing so, oppressed the suffering. Is that you? Is that me? Have we, been, have we been coerced into pursuing luxury and comfort and ease of life? Have we been seduced into pursuing money as the height of success, as what it means to really live? Have we been seduced by the idea of travel as the height of we've made it? I can travel wherever I want to go. Have we been seduced into self-indulgence over serving others and loving others well? Are we seduced by partisanship, by partisan politics, really leaning hard into our party and their, their way of life and demonizing people on the other side of the aisle? Have we been seduced into our favorite news channel, into our favorite media outlet? Have we been seduced into social media, into the game of trying to one-up one another and present a perfect picture of our perfect lives that doesn't in any way mirror actual reality? What's the false bride in your life? What's trying to seduce you away from Jesus and his community? We've all got them. We've all got idols that are easier to worship than Jesus is because they don't make any demands on us. Idols serve us. We serve Jesus. Jesus calls us to come and die. An idol says, I'll give you whatever you want. Just worship me. Jesus calls us to follow him and to lay down everything except our love for him. An idol says, come and worship me and you can have all the comfort you'd ever want. Of course, it comes at the cost of your soul because following the prostitute, following the false bride, only ever leads to destruction. You cannot sit on the throne of heaven and on the throne of your heart while Jesus also sits there. We cannot rule our own lives, and also say we've submitted to Jesus as Lord. Who will sit on the throne of my heart? Will I be seduced by the false bride? Or will I remember that Jesus is my king? Jesus is my husband. Jesus is the one who leads me. Jesus is the one who identifies me. Jesus is the one who has saved me. Jesus is the one who calls me. And Jesus is the only one who can give me eternal life, which my soul hungers and longs for more than any riches of the world and more than any temporary comfort of this life. And so we're brought now to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Now the first thing we have to ask at this wedding feast is, who is the bride? Now I've already alluded to it, I've already said, right, we are the bride of Christ. But where is that? I don't see that here. I don't see the bride explicitly named here. This is where you got to know your Old Testament. Multiple times through the prophets of the Old Testament, the people of God, the children of Israel, are called God's bride. God says, I have loved you like a bride. God says, I have called you my bride. A few times God says, you've cheated on me like a wayward bride. And I'm your husband who wants you back. In fact, the entire book of Hosea is just about this. Have you ever heard of Hosea? You ever read the book of Hosea? It's crazy, man. It's wild. Hosea is a prophet of God. That means he's someone who speaks on God's behalf. God gives Hosea words, and then Hosea speaks them to the people of God. And God tells Hosea to do something really weird. God tells Hosea, hey, I want you to go and marry this woman, Gomer, who's a prostitute. And just know she's not going to be faithful to you. Like, that's on the table right from the beginning. It's not like you're going to get married, and all of a sudden her character is going to radically change. God tells Hosea, go marry Gomer. Gomer. Knowing she is going to cheat on you, and I want you to have children. And this is going to be an object lesson for my people. To say, this is how you've treated me. The way Gomer has treated Hosea is how you, my people, have treated me. And yet I am still here. I still want you. I still love you. God is the husband we have cheated on over and over and over and over and over again and has never said, I don't want you anymore. Instead, he has constantly come to us and said, please come back to me. Please be mine again. Please. And then he makes his ultimate plea in Jesus who has come to us when we were as wayward as we could be, when we had fully rejected our God. And Jesus says, I love you. I still love you. I never stopped loving you, and I'll prove it. I will let you kill me. I will let your sin drive nails through my wrists and feet. And just to prove that I still love you, even after that, I will come back from the dead to declare that you are mine. I will not let you go. Ever. And so here in Revelation 19, all that language of the Old Testament that calls God's people God's bride is now transferred. It's all brought forward to followers of Jesus. And so revelation is weird because it's not chronological. You can't, like, make out a timeline from it. If you have a timeline of revelation of the end times, throw it away. It's junk, right? You can't make a timeline out of revelation. It's not the kind of literature that it is. And it's weird, too, because multiple images apply to the same thing. Multiple metaphors apply to the same thing. So it's bizarre because the invitees to The wedding feast of the Lamb are also the bride. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And here comes the bride, adorned in fine white linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. All the good things that they have done through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of Jesus Christ. We come and we sit at this wedding feast. Now... Uh, my wedding was back in 2010, and I had the most WASPish wedding ever. You know what a WASP is? White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Okay, that's that's my family, right? Um, I had the most WASPish wedding ever. My wife is not here, so you can confirm with her whether or not this is true. Um, but we were we planned it, and uh, it was it was a great wedding. It was beautiful May Day, um, but we we planned it very much in the mindset of like we don't want to we don't want to inconvenience people too much. We don't want to hold them up too much. And so we had like a three hour window blocked out. We didn't even have like a DJ. We had like a jazz trio, a string trio that my friends put together. And uh, it was a beautiful day. It was a great time. And then when it was time, Beth and I, we did the, through the lavender leaves and Beth and I got into the car and we drove away and everybody else cleaned up and we went, they went home. And that was our wedding. It was like a nice little four hour affair. And that was pretty much it, you know, short little homily, and we're done. Now, recently, I got a wedding. I got an invitation to a destination wedding, and we were looking over the schedule for this wedding, and it's a four-day thing, right? There are, there are activities set for four days. There's partying all night the night of the wedding. There's stuff happening the next day. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. Um, it is not waspish in the least, right? There's no, there's no like, we, well, we want to make sure you can still get to dinner or put your kids in bed, right? No, we're hanging out. We're enjoying each other. We're partying. We're having a good time, right? And yet even that four-day invitation is nothing to the way a wedding would have been done in the time and place of the Bible. You're talking about 10 days of celebrating all kinds of preparations and feasting and spending time together and days upon days upon days of being together and celebrating and enjoying one another. And you wanna make sure as the hosts of the wedding that your guests don't have a care or concern in the world. Everything is taken care of them. The rest of life is not encroaching on this time that we are spending together. We are gonna party and we are gonna party and we are gonna party. And you would invite your family and your friends and the whole community That's how a wedding went down. So when you're one of these early Christians listening to this, the wedding feast of the Lamb, that's what you got in mind. Only this wedding party never ends. This wedding party blows even those out of the water. It is the forever wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the forever wedding party of Jesus. It's never gonna end. He has already provided all that we need For all of eternity, to enjoy one another's company, to celebrate, to be with our King Jesus, it will never, ever, ever end. And here in Revelation 19, this is a picture of something that the prophet Isaiah prophesied way back in Isaiah 25. In Isaiah 25, the prophet is talking about the day of God's judgment coming and the day of God's justice coming for the world. And he's talking about the day that he's gonna restore his children Israel. Right now, when Isaiah's talking back in Isaiah 25, the children of Israel have been taken away. They've been taken into exile. The children of Judah have been taken away into exile by Babylon. They're not living in their land, they don't have access to their temple. There's no partying happening for the children of Israel and Judah when Isaiah's talking in Isaiah 25. Only Isaiah's foretelling a day. Remember that husband God who's never gonna give up? On his wayward bride, God says through Isaiah, look, I sent you away to restore you. I didn't send you away forever. I didn't cast you off. I didn't say you're not mine. You're still mine even if you're not at home. But there's a day when I'm going to bring you home. There's a day when I'm going to carry you, my bride, over the threshold, and we are going to live together forever. And on that day, it's not just going to be you Jewish people who are here. It's going to be people from all the nations, from all over the world. And I'm going to set up a feast table on a mountaintop, and we are all just going to party forever. And it says in Isaiah 25 that on that day, he, God, will abolish death. Death. Will be no more, and in the eternal party of God, death will never have a hold ever again. And then in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy 1 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus the one who abolished death. So that by the time we get here to Revelation chapter 19, We're at the wedding feast of the lamb, the one who's abolished death, who has rid the world of the prostitute and of the beast and of the dragon, who has given us peace once and for all, and death no longer has a hold on the people of God. That's the party we get to go to. That's the party we look forward to. And that's the party that we get to rehearse every single week when we get together here. I want you to think of every single Sunday that we gather as a dress rehearsal for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Every single time we get together as followers of Jesus, it's a dress rehearsal for the great party that we're going to have with Jesus at the end of all things that will never, ever end. And that's why when we come together here, it's about more than preaching, it's about more than a concert, it's about more than going through some rituals, it's about being together and declaring who Jesus is and who we are. When we get together at this dress rehearsal for the wedding feast, we are reminded that we are the bride of Christ, that he has given all for us. And we are empowered then to resist the temptation of the false bride. We're empowered to resist the seduction of the false bride and instead be rooted and anchored in who we are as the bride of Christ. And to never, ever, ever forget that. To hold on tight to him and to each other. And when we invite people in to this celebration, when we invite people into this dress rehearsal, we're pulling back the chair and saying, would you have a seat at the wedding feast of Jesus? Would you have a seat at this party? Would you come and be my brother and sister forever? Would you come and celebrate with me? Would you come drink the wine? Would you come eat the cake? Would you come party with me? This isn't just an invitation to come hear some speaker or listen to some music or meet some nice people. The invitation to come to the dress rehearsal of the wedding feast of the Lamb is an invitation into eternal life. It's an invitation to be anchored and rooted in Jesus. It's an invitation to unsurpassable, unsurmountable joy. It's an invitation to a party, to celebrate together. That's why we gather here. That's why we're here. And if, if, if you're not there yet, If you're not at that place of joy yet, I want to invite you. I want to pull back the seat. i want to pull back the chair and say, would you take a seat at this banquet table? Would you come and be with us? Would you party with us? Let me pour a glass of wine for you. After church is over, because we can't have wine in this building. But (laughs) let me pour a glass of wine for you. Let me cut a piece of cake. Let's enjoy each other's company as fellow invitees and guests to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We need this time. It is not optional for the follower of Jesus. We need it. We need it to be anchored and rooted in our identity as Christ's bride, and we need it to be empowered to reject the seduction of the false brides in our lives, to reject the power of the idols in our lives that would seduce us with promises of comfort and of security and of provision and instead be reminded that what matters is the eternal life that Jesus has to give and the people that I get to enjoy it with. When I get to the end of my life, I want to say, I sat down at the wedding feast of Jesus. When I get to heaven, when I see Jesus face to face, when he rolls out that carpet and seats us at his banquet table, I want to say, I got a taste of this every single time I got together with your people. I want to be able to say, I, this is so familiar to me because I've done this over and over and over and over again with your people, Jesus. I want heaven to be so familiar to me because we were able to be a little bit of heaven right here every time we got together. That's why we gather. That's the heart of this. And it is all possible because of what Jesus has done for us. It is all possible because of the broken body and the shed blood of our King Jesus who calls us to himself and calls us his bride even when we run away to idols and to false brides. It's because of Jesus, the ultimate expression of God's unfailing commitment to his wayward people that we get to come and be together, celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb every week. And so we're going to come and we're going to partake of the body and blood of Jesus. And we believe that when we do this, the bread and juice don't become the literal body and blood of Christ, but that Jesus is present, that the Holy Spirit is present, that God himself is truly present in an inexpressible way in this meal. So I want to invite you in just a moment to come forward if you're a follower of Jesus and to partake of the body and blood. We have bread here you'll tear off and you'll dip into the cup and then partake on your way back. If you'd prefer, we have a pre-filled cup you can grab up here at the front, or you can get one at the back if you'd prefer. And if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I want you to consider what you're missing out, what you're missing out of in being able to sit at that wedding feast with Jesus being invited into this eternal celebration, being given eternal life, life that not only doesn't end, but it is full and joyful in a way that no other system or ideology or idol could ever give.